Proverbs chapter 27 and verses 3 and 4, as I was looking at this, I, I really intended to uh, cover more verses, but as I, I got to studying this, uh, I really narrowed it down just to these two verses that we're going to look at this evening. And uh, at first, when I first read through as I categorized things, uh, I thought it was talking about um, wrath and anger. And, uh, and with that, and we'll look at those as well, uh, not tonight, but in, in the weeks that come. Uh, but this is a really interesting verse here. Proverbs 27, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? And, uh, and so let's stop there, let's pray, and then we'll look at these verses and we'll kind of get an idea of, of what he's talking about in these verses. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you just for your goodness to us. Thank you again for the opportunity that we have to open your word and read your word. God, I pray that you'd use me. God, I pray that you'd speak through me. I pray, Father, that you would touch each and every heart. And God, help us in our lives to, uh, to live a life contented uh, with what we have. Father, we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. As we think about these, this idea of contentment, uh, let me say this. The definition for discontent is this, it's dissatisfaction with one's circumstances. Uh, sometimes we can be dissatisfied or discontented, uh, maybe with our possessions, maybe with our position, uh, maybe with some other thing, uh, but basically the idea is sometimes uh, we can even become discontented with the Lord. Uh, maybe we expect Him to do one thing and He does not do it. And then we're left dissatisfied, we're left discontented, we're left disheartened, thinking, uh, well, why didn't the Lord do what I expected Him to do? And so discontentment can come in all forms and all sizes, really, in our life. It can come with possessions as well. Many times that's what we tend to think of when we think of discontentment. Uh, we think of possessions that we have and not having enough. And the Bible addresses that and it talks about that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. Well, go ahead and turn there. Save your spot in Proverbs 27. We will be right back there. But I, I want to look at this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he really gives a whole passage on this. We're not going to cover the whole passage. But I just would like for you to see these couple of verses because I believe they're important and they're helpful to us, especially talking about the idea of contentment. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 6, the Bible says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Boy, what a verse. That would be a good verse for all of us to memorize. Godliness, I think I did when I was a kid. I think my dad made me memorize that uh, when I was a kid. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can, we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. What a great passage, just those three verses, and how they speak to us. One of the greatest lessons that we can, uh, in life that we can learn is, is this, that we live honestly in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. 
I was looking it up, and of course they qualify it with this and that, and I didn't get into all the particulars. I do know this. We live in, in the top 10 richest countries in the world. There's no doubt about that. And you would think, uh, being in such a wealthy country, uh, that everyone would be content. But actually, what you find is the opposite is true. That people are very discontented with what they have. They're unhappy with the possessions they have. They're, they're working to get this and to get that, and, and they're saving so that they can, uh, so they can have the next newest, greatest item that comes out. Let me say this right up front as well. There's nothing wrong with owning possessions. There's, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with being a millionaire. There's not. Uh, it's not wrong. You go back and read the Bible, you'll find there were, there were wealthy people, godly wealthy people in the Old Testament. Job, we looked at him. Uh, Abraham, he was a wealthy person in the Bible. So it's not wrong to have wealth. Uh, and I've said this before, but if wealth has you, then there's a problem. Um, but one of the things I think that, 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 that uh, really pours into the discontentment, by the way, you can have wealth and still not be content. There's many people that are in that boat. And then you can have poverty and not be content. Obviously, that would, that would be the more understandable approach for most people. But I think one of the biggest problems uh, or, or contributors to the idea of discontentment uh, is marketing. Well, you turn on the TV, and, or you listen to the radio, or, or you're on the internet, and, and, and you're on social media, and those ads, they're there. We are bombarded every single day with advertisement, and the, the advertiser's job is to make you think and make you believe you cannot live without buying this greatest slicer dicer uh fryer for the kitchen i mean it does it all you throw the potato in you hit the button and you just watch it man it does it all and that's what they make you think uh and then you get it and you find out well there's a whole lot more involved than just what they showed on the commercial i mean have you ever you ever bought into one of the schemes and and uh, that's really a learning experience and then you find out well this ain't half of what it was cracked up to be and and a month later, it's in the garage sale for uh, $2 or 50 cents. You're like, man, I'll pay you a dollar to take it. You know, just get it out of my house. Because they, they play on our, un, our, our lack of contentment in our life. And they make you think that you need or have to have these things. Uh, and listen, their, their job is to make money. They are not looking out. You might not know this. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're really not. Uh, now, sometimes people make things to help people, and then they do market them and sell them, and there are some helpful things. But by and large, the marketing industry is not out there to, to make your life, uh, your, or, or they're not looking out for your best interest. And so uh, we've been trained to see those things and, uh, and become discontented with what we have in life. And this verse in, in 1 Timothy is very important, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So I, I just wanted us to see uh, this idea of contentment in the New Testament. Let's go back to our text in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse number 3. And uh, we're going to look at verse number 3 and, uh, and let's, let's dig into what it is talking about. And, uh, and we'll come full circle back to where uh, we were talking about contentment. Look with me at verse number 3. The Bible says, 
a stone is heavy and the sand is weighty. Um, as, as pastor says often, isn't the Bible so hard to understand? That's pretty simplistic. Uh, a stone is weighty and sand is weighty. Uh, we understand that if, if you ever... Um, if you've ever uh, canoed or maybe you've been out in the woods and you're looking to uh, tie something to something, the first most obvious thing you look for is a big stone. And if you can't lift it and you can get your rope around it, all the better. Because whatever you tie that thing to, man, it's not going to move. Maybe a tent blowing away, uh, maybe a canoe that you don't want it to wash away. Uh, whatever it is, you look for something that is, uh, as here says, a rock that's heavy or sand uh, that, that is, is heavy as well. Those are two things. We fill bags full of sand. I learned today that, uh, that you can buy a bag for, and, and fill it with sand and, uh, and tie it and use it as a temporary anchor uh, for, for these things, for sidus and things like that. And then you dump all your sand out, put the bag back in your pocket, and you're all set. I mean, a, a portable anchor. Uh, and and, uh, and for, for stopping on sandbars and things of that nature, I thought, I'd never heard of such a thing. It keeps it from drifting away. Uh, but, but sand is certainly a weighty thing. So the Bible gives us a very clear and easy to understand idea that, that stones and sand is heavy. But the second part of that, he's giving us a, the, the illustration. The second part of that, he says, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. A fool's wrath. Now we're going to talk about anger for a little bit here. And I want to say this right up front, that, uh, that Jesus' anger in the New Testament was not out of control. You understand that? Because when you start to talk about anger, uh, somebody's going to think, well, didn't Jesus get angry and didn't he flip over the tables in the temple and didn't he uh, make a scourge and, and drive the people out of there? Yes, he did, actually. And why did he do that? Because there was wickedness going on in the house of God and he could not allow it. And so therefore he did drive those people out. Uh, but he was angry uh, in a right way. It was not a uncontrolled, violent rage of anger. Jesus didn't go in there and just uh, go into a rage. Uh, no, he knew what he was doing, and he was in complete control of himself the entire time. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number uh, 6, I believe it is. I know I wrote it down here somewhere. I didn't. Uh, oh, I did. Ephesians 4, 26, it says, Be angry. And sin not. So it is possible to be angry and not sin. Uh, and the difference is being in control. Losing control to that anger or remaining in control. So I want you to understand that uh, right up front. But I want you to notice in our text here, the Bible says, but a fool's wrath. Now a fool, we know we've looked at many times, uh, and, and in, this, uh, in this verse, we can take this definition, one who is destitute of reason. Have you ever gotten angry and, and, and did something that you regretted? We all have. I've done that. Uh, and, and you do something stupid, and then afterwards you're like, that was stupid. Why did I do that? And what it is, is we are destitute of reason at that moment. We have allowed the anger to get the best of us and to control us. Many times words are spoken in anger. 
And, and that's the best time to bite your tongue and be careful of the words that you say when you're angry because, boy, it's easy to let words fly out of your mouth that are not right. Uh, it's easy to cut somebody down when you're angry. It's easy to say things that are incorrect uh, when we're angry. And so we need to be careful of that. But here the Bible says, a fool's wrath. So he, he's definitely... Uh, contributing it to somebody who is a fool or out of control or destitute of reason. In other words, they're not listening to reason. And I want you to notice this about anger. I want you to notice anger's constraint. He, he, he uh, compares it to a weight and a heavy stone and sand. Uh, and, and as I s explained, that's the first thing that you look for. You want to tie something up. Hey, you want some big rock or something that you can tie it to that you can anchor it to. And listen, uh, that's obvious. That's easy to understand. But in our life, the Bible equates sin to being a weight, something that is weighty. The Bible says in Pro or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, if you've ever ran races you know you don't want any extra weight weighing you down. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a teenager and when I was a, uh, well, I guess teenager I would have been, uh, I, I ran a I ran 100-yard dash pretty fast. Uh, I was not the fastest, but I was pretty fast, at least in our church group and, and other, but I couldn't run distance to save my life. Uh, I run a distance, and man, I, I got the first 100 yards down, and then after that, man, I was walking, I was panting, and I was puffing, and I was dying, and everyone else was blowing by me, you know, and I'm like, I couldn't do it. Uh, but, but when you run, you don't want to have weight with you. Uh, I remember my mom had some weights, or my dad, and they were, they were these things, that you'd put them around your ankles, or you'd put them around your arms. And, uh, and man, you put them around your ankles, and you kind of walk around, and I tell you what, you walk around for an hour or two with those things on your ankles, and your feet are heavy. I mean, they weighed quite a bit. But I tell you what, you take those things off, man, your feet feel light as feathers. It's like, man, I, I think I could really run really fast now because those weights are removed. And, and the Bible is comparing anger to a weight. And, and what the idea, one of the ideas is that uh, anger constrains your life. It will hold you back. It is a besetting sin to many people. It is something that will, uh, that will keep you from advancing in your life, spiritually speaking. And so we need to be careful of anger because anger is very constraining in our life. It will keep us from advancing. Not only that, but the foolishness. Proverbs 14, 17 says this, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. And so we need to be careful uh, that our anger does not get the best of us and overtake us because it will constrain us in our life. It compares it to a weight. And it says a fool's wrath is heavier. It's more constraining than the weight of a stone carrying a stone around or carrying sandbags around in your life. Not only do we have anger's constraint, I want you to see anger's cruelty. Look with me at verse 4. It says, wrath is cruel, 
And anger is outrageous. Anger uh, means a, a, anger is a violent passion of the mind ex excited by a real or supposed injury, usually accompanied with a propensity to take vengeance or obtain satisfaction from the offending party. So the idea of anger is, is a violent passion of the mind excited by a real or supposed injury. Somebody does something to you. Um, and this is often seen in little kids. You, I, little kids are great to observe because you know why? Uh, they don't hide their feelings. I mean, they, it's out there uh, for everyone to see. And one little kid goes up to another kid and he wants that toy, so he grabs that toy. You know what that other kid's going to do? He's going to hit him or he's going to push him down, more than likely. Uh, why? Because he just got mad because that other kid took that, or he's going to run and cry to uh, the teacher or whatever. Uh, but but he's, he got angry, and so what's going to happen? Well, that's going to incite that, uh, that, that idea of, I'm going to get revenge. He just wronged me. He took that out of my hand, and, and I'm going to get him back for what he did to me. And some people have this maybe stronger than others, but the idea is that, uh, that it, it just, it's cruel and it can be uh, very dangerous. Not only that, it says here, wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. Wrath is defined as violent anger. And so now we have this idea of becoming violent uh, with, with what is going on to get revenge or obtain satisfaction uh, of somebody that has wronged you. And the Bible says here in our, our verse 4, wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. In other words, they don't act within reason. We go back to the example. If you've gotten angry and you've done something or said something, sometimes it's unreasonable. It's not going to help anything. Uh, and so uh, it's something that we need to be aware of, and the Bible is very clear that it's cruel. Sometimes we look at uh, how people hurt other people. We're like, how on earth could he do that? And we're outside of the moment. And we're looking at it, and we're like, man, what would drive a person to do something like that? Many times, and not always, but many times it is anger. It's acting out of vengeance. It's acting out of wrath. It's acting out of, well, he did this to me, so therefore it is within my rights, or so they think, to be able to pay them back for something that they did to them. And it ends up, an outsider looks at it, in a logical setting and says, man, that's just cruel. That's, that's outrageous. That's unreasonable. And oftentimes, uh, revenge is worse than the offense that was committed. Um, we play games at our house, and sometimes uh, we will play a game where, where you have to steal one, I don't know, some parts or pieces from one person and and uh, and. and I've heard it said around the, the game table, well, if you steal from me, I'm going to steal twice from you. And we're joking. It's a game. But isn't that the way revenge is? You hit me, I'm going to hit you twice as hard. That's the way revenge works. You get them back worse than what they got to you because you not only want to pay them back, but you also want to teach them a lesson. It's, it, becomes, uh, it becomes worse than what they have done to you. Now, you multiply that a hundred times into very violent acts, and it becomes a very serious problem. Not only serious, but it becomes cruel. 
And it becomes outrageous. And that is what the Bible is warning us. It says wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. And seeking the harm of others is certainly something uh, that, that uh, is not good. We need to be aware of. So we can see anger's constraint. We can see anger's cruelty. I want you to notice as well, anger's control. Uh, look in verse 4 that we read there. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. You know, when we act out of anger, it's anger that is controlling us. It's giving way to our anger. You know, the Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of, right, of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In other words, uh, when, when we act out in anger, maybe it's words, we have yielded our tongue to the anger that's in our heart and allowed it to uh, work unrighteousness. That's what that verse is saying. In other words, that we've allowed our tongue to be able to say whatever uh, our heart feels or whatever our mind thinks. And many times that's not right and that's not something that's good. Uh, but he says in the second part of that verse, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In other words, that we would take our life and we'd say, God, I want to use my tongue for you. I don't remember if it was here. Uh, or in teen class, or if it was Sunday school. I think it might have been adult Sunday school. And uh, I gave this illustration. We used to sing when I was a kid in, 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 the, in the children's church. Uh, we'd sing, uh, I've got this tongue. I can't control. And you stick it out. Uh, so I give it to my Lord. And, and, and you go through all the, yeah, I got these hands. I can't control. And so you give them to the Lord. That is yielding your body to the Lord and saying, God, I don't want my hands to be controlled in anger. I don't want my hands to strike out out of anger. I don't want my tongue to lash out out of anger. I don't want, uh, I don't want my feet to, uh, to kick out of anger. I want to be able to yield myself as a member of God to, to God so that I can use them for his honor and for his glory. And so uh, anger will control you, and we should not give in to anger. The Bible says in James 1.19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We're going to look at an example of that, uh, of people who uh, are controlled by their anger, or a couple examples rather in the scripture where people were controlled by their anger. And so we can see, we had to look at this, anger's constraint, anger's cruelty, and anger's control. And so you're thinking, okay, but I thought we were talking about contentment. We are. We're going to get there. Look with me at the last part of verse 4. He says, but who, let's go to verse 4 all the way from the beginning. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Now, what's envy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Envy is to feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontent 
at the sight of superior excellence, reputation, or happiness enjoyed by others. In other words, you look at somebody else and, and maybe, maybe at work they got a promotion that you wanted. Oh, and it just burns you up on the inside. And you look at them and you say, that scoundrel, he didn't deserve that promotion. He wasn't worth it. I worked twice as hard as him and, and, and he doesn't deserve those things. That is envy inside of you. Or you can take it to another realm. You can say, uh, man, I'm, I'm, maybe you're saving for a, for, for a bass boat. Maybe you're saving for that new car and, uh, or whatever it is. And, and your neighbor drives into his driveway with the exact model of that bass boat that you're saving up to buy. Oh, and it burns you up. You're out. That guy bought that boat. I was, man, I, I was next week I was going to go get it. I had the last amount that I needed. And it burns you up with envy because you become jealous of somebody who attained something that you were not able to get. And so that feeling and that emotion, and what I want us to see here is anger's competition is envy. Anger's competition is envy. So we see the idea here is that he starts out with a stone is heavy and the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. In other words, hey, a fool's wrath uh, would be uh, anger's constraint, anger's cruelty, and anger's control, and how that weighs down a life and will restrain somebody from advancing in their life. There's people that are so caught up in their anger over envy because some person has advanced that they, they cannot even live a normal life. It consumes them day and night. And what the Bible is saying is that, listen, really, in all reality, when you boil that all down, it comes down to being content with what you have. Envy is the opposite of content. It's looking at somebody else and it's saying, well, they've got something that I don't and I want to have it. Uh, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter number 6, in verse 34, for jealousy is the rage of man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. And so we see that envy becomes a serious problem. Uh, anger and wrath are, are opposite are opposite to contentment. In other words, they're discontented uh, because of some circumstance. And if we let anger, uh, if we let go, anger will occupy our thoughts and our mind and ultimately determine our destination. I want you to go with me. Save your spot here in Proverbs 27. And go with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. And I want you to see this. I, I read this and I was like, this fits this passage like a glove. It just goes hand in hand. As we think about envy and we think about discontentment, in 1 Kings chapter number 21, and verse number 1, uh, we're not going to read a, a large passage, but I, I do want you to see this. It's just incredible. 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So we've got two characters. We've got Naboth. He owns a vineyard that's placed right beside the king's palace. And we got Ahab. And Ahab, by the way, you'll find out in the story anyways, was a wicked king. He was not a good king. 
Uh, and so those are the two characters introduced. Look with me at verse number two. And Ahab spake unto Nabal, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. So we're good here. Verse 2 is fine. Ahab says, he looks at the vineyard and he says, man, I'd like to have that. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, uh, why don't you give me your vineyard? We'll trade and, uh, and you can take my vineyard and I'll take your vineyard and I'll give you a better vineyard than what yours is. Or if you would rather, I'll just give you money uh, for that vineyard. Whatever the price is, hey, I'll pay it. After all, Ahab is the king and Ahab is wealthy. And there's probably not much that Ahab could not have uh, if he wanted it. So we see that in verse number two. Look with me at verse number three. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased. Isn't it ironic that they would use the word heavy? I don't think it's irony. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. What a brat. That's what I would say if he was my kid. So it's a very easy story to understand. Naboth has a vineyard, Ahab the king wants it, he offers it, and Ahab's, or Naboth says in verse number 3, the Lord forbid it me. And I did not go back and look up all the things of the inheritance, but I do know this, in the nation of Israel there were lands that they did inherit, and God did forbid them from just selling them and trading them like properties. They were to stay in their family. Because God, you remember, promised Israel that land. And so uh, they had land, and he refused to give it to King, uh, King, King Ahab. By the way, it was his property, so even if God refused him, he had a right to not sell it. He could say, I don't want to sell it. I like that. It's been in my family for generations. And so, but he did say, hey, the Lord forbid it me. I'm not allowed to sell it. I could not do that. I could not part with that land. Look with me at verse number five. But Jezebel, that would be Ahab's wife, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? She said, Aren't you king around here? I remember reading that in the paper somewhere. She said, Aren't you king? Arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. 
So basically, Jezebel concocts an idea. You can read down through there, verses 8 through 13. She concocts an idea, and she writes letters in King Ahab's name and signs them with King Ahab's signature, uh, and his ring is signet, and seals it with the king's ring, and, and sends off letters. And what she basically does is hires, the Bible says, sons of Belial, or men of Belial. That would be wicked, evil men to come and lie against Naboth and take Naboth to court and say, hey, we heard Naboth take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, 2021, you're scratching your head saying, so what? He swore. I mean, it happens every day. In Old Testament times, if you took the Lord's name in vain, they took you out and stoned you. We have gone a long way from righteousness to where we are today. And I'm not advocating that people should be stoned for using the Lord's name in vain. I'm just saying that we have gotten so far away from righteousness that, that it's scary. But she wrote letters and had them sent so that these men would testify against Naboth. And Naboth uh, was accused and Naboth was taken out and Naboth was stoned for something that he did not do. And Jezebel said, there you go. Now you can at the vineyard. It's yours. What's the problem with all of this? The problem is this. King Ahab saw something that he wanted. And, and if he would have stopped when he was told no, that would be the end of the story. But he was envious of something that somebody else had. Now, he was a king. He was in a high position. There wasn't too much that, that King Ahab... Uh, it would be different if we're looking at this, and maybe it wouldn't be different, but we might understand a little better if, if, if Ahab wasn't a powerful man and did not have wealth. If he's saying, I sure wish I had a... Uh, uh, but he was. He was wealthy, and he had a lot of wealth, and he was still envious, which tells us, hey, that wealth will not satisfy uh, and it will not provide contentment to people. God's the only one that can do that. And realizing, hey, that's what the Bible says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But he looked at it and he said, I've got to have it. And then he started complaining and whining. Uh, and he goes to bed and he says, I'm not going to eat anything uh, until uh, I'm not going to eat anything. And Jezebel realizes, hey, what's wrong? Hey, I want to help. And so she comes in and, uh, and takes the land. And there's several things about that. Uh, as we think about our, our verse in Proverbs, he says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? You think, was it right that Naboth died? No, it was flat cruel. It was wrong. He was lied against. Uh, was, it, was it something within reason that, that Naboth should have died? No, it was outrageous. And we see that wrath uh, and anger can drive a person to do things that are cruel, that are outrageous, but then envy is even a step beyond that because it goes through wicked plotting of how can we get back this guy with whom we have envy. And you look at that story and you say it is a story of envy. It is a story of uncontrolled passions. You look at it all and you say, it is a story of discontentment. Why could Ahab not have been content with being king of Israel? Why could Ahab not have been content with the vineyards that he said were better than Naboth's? But he wasn't. To the point of envy and to the point of murder. 
and to the point of taking something that does not belong to him. You can take that story, and everything that I just said can all be applied to King David and Bathsheba. Same story, different place, different circumstances, same thing. Envy. David was king. He had power. David was married. He had a wife, more than one. And yet he looked at somebody else's and he was envious and he couldn't live with what he had. He was not content with his own possessions that he went through uh, some outrageous stuff and sent one of his own loyal soldiers to his grave to try and cover up his wickedness. And what I'm saying is discontentment is dangerous in any form. And we need to beware of discontentment. The Bible tells it out story after story after story throughout the Bible. You can go back and reapply it. Back in Proverbs 27, the Bible says this, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? We find that envy will drive people to further extremes and further actions than wrath and anger put together. That's what the, that's what the Bible says. And all of that is seeded in the idea of discontentment. And, and even the smallest form, we need to guard our hearts and guard our lives against discontentment. And as the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, that we started with, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. A lesson on contentment. Not being envious. Not allowing our anger to get the best of us in life. What a great proverb to be honest with you. Just two simple verses. And, and what, a, what an impact and what a difference it can make in our life. As we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. God, certainly...